according to Eugene Peterson. I look to you, heaven-dwelling God, look up to you for help, like servants alert to their master's commands, like a maiden attending her lady. We're watching and waiting, holding our breath, awaiting your word of mercy. Mercy, God, mercy. We've been kicked around long enough, kicked in the teeth by complacent rich men, kicked when we're down by arrogant brutes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Welcome to you. If you're visiting, my name's Kieran. I'm on the staff here at St. Philip's and you've joined us for the first day uh, of Advent and as we wait for uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at Christmas. Uh, But let me ask you this, what are you waiting for? Uh, What are you waiting for? Uh, Prisoners or addicts wait to be set free, don't they? Uh, People with a chronic illness, uh, they wait to be healed. Refugees wait to return home. Separated families or friends wait to be reunited. People who are in danger wait to be rescued. There are even churches that wait for a new leader. But what about you? What are you waiting for? This morning what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about and look at from Isaiah chapter 30, which by the way I do hope you'll Uh, Keep it open because there's some really rich gems there. You can grab your pew Bible. It's on page 573 that we're going to be uh, looking at. And we're going to be looking at the problem of impatience, the healing of impatience, and the practice of patience. So what about you? What are you looking for? What are you waiting for? The Bible has a lot to say about watching and waiting. It has a lot to say about what to do while we're waiting. But it seems to have at least as much to say about what not to do, about the problem of impatience. So um, if you think about the story of Abraham, God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, but he couldn't wait. Uh, His wife was barren, she couldn't have kids, and so he couldn't wait. He slept with her servant, Hagar, and he gave birth to Ishmael, which, if you know the story, resulted in all kinds of problems and all kinds of pain. If I had a dollar for every time I'd given birth to an Ishmael, I'd be a very rich man. He couldn't wait. Moses promised that after he went up the mountain, he would come back down to bring a message from God. But the people couldn't wait. So what did they do? They made a golden calf to worship and bow down to the most infamous and shameful and greatest failure of the Israelites in their history. All because they couldn't wait. The prophet Samuel had told King Saul and his army to wait until he, Samuel, would come and offer a sacrifice unto the Lord. But after seven days, King Saul just couldn't wait. So he made the sacrifice himself. And so Samuel declared to Saul that the kingdom has been torn away from you, King Saul, and it has been given to King David instead, all because he couldn't wait. Did you know in the early first century, there was a, a group uh, in the in early century, first century Rome known as the Zealots, 
who had become tired of waiting for the Messiah to come. So they just couldn't wait. They decided to take matters into their own hands. They were called the zealots. What would happen is that in the first century, they couldn't wait for the Messiah. So a charismatic leader would come up. He would gather a a group of malcontents and turn them into a a revolutionary group who would fight to, to, to establish the kingdom. And then the Roman Empire would crush them and beat them down. You remember that Jesus had one of them amongst his 12 disciples, don't you? He was called Simon the Zealot. So many people who just couldn't wait. And so in our reading this morning in verse 15, it says, God says to the people of God, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you refused and said, no, we will flee upon horses. The context is that it's 701 BC and the Jews are in Jerusalem and literally the barbarians are at the gate, except it's not barbarians, it is the Assyrians are at the gate. Their allies have fallen through, they've already conquered, conquered the, um, the villages around them and they're at the gate God's promised to take care of them, but they don't want God's help because then they'd lose their independence from God that they cherish so much. And so rather than turn uh, to God, who's promised to protect them, they turn to Egypt. And of course, you think about Egypt and the history of Israel, they had, they had fond memories of Egypt. Remember, that was the place where they were enslaved. That, that was the place where Pharaoh had uh, promised, uh, had, had made a decree to slaughter their firstborn sons. Uh, remember the story? You, you know it well. So, of course, uh, 300 years later, they had very fond memories of Egypt and, and, and came to the conclusion that they would make a, a good ally and a reliable friend uh, in the face of the Assyrian attack. Uh, but for some, for some reason, God had forbidden them from turning uh, to Egypt uh, to be their ally and to be their defense. It might have had something to do with the whole being slaves in Egypt and slaughtering the firstborn kind of thing. But they decided that they wanted to go to Egypt, despite what God said and despite what they knew so well about Egypt. And so like many of us who are under pressure, they were looking for a quick fix. And back in those days, of course, there was nothing quicker than horses. Uh, They were the Ferraris, they were the Lamborghinis. In fact, they were the the glamour weapons of the day, the the, the superpower, uh, if you like, nuclear weapons of the day. That was Egypt. That was horses. God offers himself, but they choose horses. Uh, He warns them in verse 3 of of Isaiah 30, it's it's not going to work. The protection of Pharaoh will become your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt will be your humiliation. And so it's not just that the the people of God have chosen such a terrible ally for a friend, as it says in Proverbs, like a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. It's not just that, it's that they've done so in repudiation of a personal relationship of dependence with the true and living God, a loving and mighty God who had delivered them from the hand of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 
In fact, they've actually been in a situation like this before. Can you remember the story after the 10th plague that the Israelites had fled away from Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but then Pharaoh changed his mind and they're bearing down on them with Pharaoh and his chariots and his horses and his armies. And of course, they're stuck at the Red Sea and they're absolutely terrified. And in Exodus 14, Moses says to the people, do not be afraid, stand firm. And see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. They've been in this situation before. And God rescued them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He buried Pharaoh and the Egyptian army in the bottom of the Red Sea. They passed through on dry land. And so they know that God is faithful and he can deliver from superpowers. And so I wonder how many people there are this morning who are feeling under pressure. People who are in trouble and distress and you're looking for a quick fix and can't wait for God's timing. How many of us are like children who snatch the unripe fruit and are always dealing with the bitter consequences? That's the problem of impatience. But what about the healing of impatience. I think you see it there in verse 18 of Isaiah 30. He says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore he will rise up to show mercy to you. Even if they refuse to wait upon the Lord, the Lord won't stop waiting for them. Uh, he'll actually let their chil- his children have their fill of the bitter fruit, of picking unripe fruit, and experience all of the consequences of going their own way in their own strength. And when they're ready, when they've had their fill, he waits to be gracious to them, to rise up and to show mercy. And as they reject him, as they go their own way in their own strength, let me show you his great love and kindness to them in the passage, because out of his love and kindness, he'll speak to them through their bitter experience in verses 3 to 5. He'll speak to them in verse 8 through the written word. He'll speak to them through prophets and preachers, calling them back constantly. He'll even speak to them through an inner voice in verse 21, saying, this is the way, walk in it. As they go their own way in their own strength, he'll he'll plead with them. He'll send prophets and preachers and and an inner voice, pleading with them to turn away and to, to come back. And so after they've rejected him again and again and again, he says in verse 18, therefore. Now, how would you finish that sentence? Therefore, I'm done. Therefore, I'm done with you guys. Therefore, I've had enough. I give up. You're on your own. If that's the way you want it, then you can have it that way. No, he doesn't say that. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show mercy to you. What a strange God who meets defiance with grace. What a strange God who meets rebellion with mercy and goodness. It's like what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5 verse 20, when sin abounded, grace abounded even more. I actually think you see some of this um, dynamic play out in the relationship between Jesus and the Apostle Peter. Uh, Because, of course, 
if you know the Apostle Peter, you know that he was incredibly impatient. He was impetuous. Uh, so remember when Jesus said to his disciples, uh, one of you is going to betray me. And straight away, Peter's like, well, it's not going to be me. And, and Jesus is like, well, well, uh, actually, it's funny that you should be the one to say that, Peter, because uh, out of all the, the 12, actually, it, it's going to be you. <laughs> and Peter says, no way, it's definitely going to be me. I will never betray you, says Peter. And so Jesus Almost as if he's following Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. He, he leaves it alone as if to say, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. He just waits. When the soldiers come to uh, arrest Jesus, Peter had a quick fix then too. Can you remember? Instead of a horse to flee on, it was a sword to strike with. Remember? But Jesus said to Peter, do you think I can't call on my father and he'll at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Peter was incredibly impatient, but the Lord Jesus was incredibly patient. After 40 days of fasting, remember, he was desperately hungry and and the devil came and tempted him in the wilderness and, and, and he tempted him by keeping on offering him a quick fix. Can you remember? Just turn these stones in, into bread. Just, just cast yourself off the temple. Just bow down and worship me. Satan was in his desperate need offering Jesus a, a quick fix. Interesting, actually, because the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is, is exactly the same temptation that the Israelites were facing when they're besieged by the Assyrians in Isaiah 30. The temptation to turn their back on God, rely on their own strength and their own power in order to get things done. It's the same temptation that Jesus te- was tempted with by the devil in the wilderness. And as you know how the story goes, he passed with flying colours. He wouldn't do anything apart from his God. He was the embodiment of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your strength and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. No wonder he says in John chapter 5, verse 19, the son can do nothing by himself. Satan, I'm not going to do it. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Jesus was constantly relying on God. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He was constantly crying out to God for direction and God for wisdom and God to power for power and to God for strength. And that's exactly what God's waiting for us to do. Would you have a look at Isaiah 30 verse 19? What's he waiting for? It says, he will surely be gracious to you when... He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for us to hear our cry and to hear us cry out to him for the wisdom and the help. Just like God wants the Israelites to do in Isaiah 30 and just like what Jesus did in the wilderness. He waits to be gracious to you and to hear the sound of your cry. Jesus was incredibly patient. But it's in the Garden of Gethsemane where we see Jesus leading up to his ultimate act of patience, his ultimate act of refusing to rely on himself and the ultimate act of reliance on God. Remember what he said in the 
Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if you are willing, may this cup be taken from me. He he felt the same temptation to, to take matters into his own hands, to go his own way. But he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. I just think about why Jesus had to die on the cross. Wasn't it for all of my impatience? For all of the times where I went ahead in my own wisdom and my own strength, where I couldn't wait for God? Didn't he go to the cross for all of my arrogant independence and for all my self-will and defiance? You see, the cure for my impatience is God's and the Lord Jesus' incredible patience. A few weeks ago, I was talking to a teenage boys that you saw up on the screen before about John chapter 5, this place where Jesus says, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. And I asked them, what would it be like for you to live like that? Only do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. And I got a great response. It was really helpful. One of the guys said, well, things would slow down a huge amount and I probably wouldn't be very productive. Well, I have to say he's half right and he's half wrong. He's half right because things do slow down. Because if you start putting Proverbs 3 verse 5 into practice, in all your ways acknowledge him, in all your ways acknowledge him, that's going to slow you down. Another translation says in all your ways submit to him. You know how if you've got a boss and you've got an idea and you have to submit to him, you know, what do you think about this? If you're going to, and, and then he says, no, no, you need to fix this up. And then, and then you get back and then you submit it again. No, you need to have that. That's going to slow you down, isn't it? But the, the Bible says in all your ways acknowledge him. It is going to slow you down. In other words, we stop being like Martha who was running around in the kitchen like a headless chook trying to save the world and we start being a bit more like Mary who was sitting at Jesus' feet and of whom Jesus said only one thing is necessary and she has chosen the better path. It will slow you down. He was half right. But my goodness, he was half wrong. He said he would stop being very productive if he started living like that. Well, let's just think about Jesus for a sec. I'm sure it didn't feel very productive for him to put together a ragtag group of 12 fishermen instead of the the elites and the powerful from Jerusalem. Uh, It couldn't have felt very productive when he had such a successful ministry that was just starting out when he was arrested by the Romans. It definitely wouldn't have felt productive when he was nailed to a cross and cried out to God, into your hands I commit my spirit. Remember how all the religious leaders mocked him while he was on the cross? He saved others, but he can't save himself. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now. But God was patient. You know how the story ends. You know what happened after three days. And so in light of what happened, in light of the fact that through the mighty power of the Holy Spirit, God raised Jesus from the dead. In light of the fact that there are billions and billions and billions throughout history of his of followers of Jesus to this very day who've been ransomed and redeemed by that very act. 
In light of all the schools and all the hospitals and all the aged care facilities and all of the homeless shelters and all of the refugee programs and all of the good deeds that are still being done by the power of the Spirit of Jesus to the glory of his name, who can possibly deny that the Lord Jesus was the most productive person who ever lived? Come on, I mean, he was kind of productive, right? He's still being productive today, isn't he? The one who, like a baby in a manger, said, the son can do nothing by himself. It's like a baby in a manger, isn't it? Except he didn't say that then, did he? He said it as an adult. The one who said, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Talk about productive. So let's talk about the practice of patience. The practice of patience can look like all kinds of things. Uh, For me, uh, more than anything else, uh, it looks like what's in this little blue box. Got about 40 or 50 index cards about all of the uh, people I care about, all of the projects I care about, all of my passions. I've got an index card for for all of them, 40 or 50 of them. And every day I just go through and I pull them out and I bring them before the Lord and I pray. These are the things where I desperately need God's help. I desperately need God's wisdom. I desperately need God to show up and I'm watching and I'm waiting and I'm praying and I'm patient because I know I can't do it myself. More than anything, what it looks like to be patient for me is just what's in this little blue box. But it also means that the first port of call for everything is to pray. So just one example from this past week. Katie Martin and I have been talking about our strategy here for welcoming and integration, especially new people, people who don't go to church, people for whom this is just what we're doing right now is incredibly weird, right? Now, as we talk about welcoming and integration, the temptation for us is, is to put our heads together and, and to say, well, we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we need to have this and we need to have this. But, but to do that without praying is to massively overestimate our capacity to, to welcome and to be welcoming, especially when you think about the Lord Jesus and his welcome. Paul says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Do you, do you think we can just program that? Look, I'm not against programming and strategizing. I, I, I'm all for it. But, but to, to, for that to be our per, first port of call is to massively overestimate our capacity to do this. But it's also to massively underestimate the power of evil in our hearts and and in our society. I mean, what makes you think that people want to be here in the first place when the beach is 800 metres away and there's so many other things to do? What on earth makes you think that you can program a welcome? People have a million other more interesting things to do on a Sunday. You think you're any match for that? The power of evil in our hearts and in, in the world? So what do we do? We pray. We pray and we pray and we pray. It's our first strategy for everything. And, and I'd love for parents to get this with their kids or grandparents with their grandkids. Do you really think our parenting techniques or even our Bible verses are any match for the evil within their hearts? The evil within our society? Do you really think that our parenting techniques are any match for the power of the world and the flesh and the devil? The devil who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
The power of Babylon that we've just had looking at with all its golden statues and glittering images. Do you think our parenting is any match for those forces? You've got to be kidding me. And so we pray. We pray and we pray and we pray. Jesus has given us the words, deliver us from evil, lead us not from temptation. Paul prays in Ephesians 1 that your eyes would be opened to the immeasurably great power for us who believe. Sure, we massively underestimate the power of evil, but more tragically, we massively underestimate God's great power for us who believe. He's so much better at these things than we are. And so we pray. To practice patience is to hold off from sending that email. Uh, Do you really need to send it straight away? Why don't you sit on it for for 24 hours and and ask God to do the thing that you're trying to achieve by sending that email? Because he's much better at it than you are. Your email probably can't get it done, but I know someone who can, and his name is Jesus. That's what practicing patience looks like. It, It looks like being quick to listen and slow to speak. To practice patience is, is to interrupt conversations and meetings by saying, guys, I've, we've got no idea what to do. Why don't we just stop and ask that, Lord, we've got no idea what we're talking about here. Could you, could you show us? Oh, I can't do this, Lord. Can you do this for me? That's what it looks like to practice patience. I want to finish by sharing with you from the blurb of a book I've written, re- written recently. <laughs> Uh, I have read, or I've only even read that much, so if I'm honest. So uh, it's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. It's by an early church historian called Alan Crider, and, and, and it's about the phenomenal growth of the early church, and, and, and this is a bit about it. It says, during the first three centuries of the, um, before the conversion of Emperor Constantine, the Christian church <clears throat> grew in the Roman Empire. It grew despite disincentives, harassment and persecution. What enabled Christianity to be so successful that by the 5th century, it was the established religion of the empire? Well, in this study, Alan Crider argues that the early church grew because of patience, because patience was of central importance in the life and witness of the early Christians. Patience was the virtue about which the early writers wrote the most. Tertullian had a tract on patience. Cyprian had a tract on patience. Augustine later had a tract. They all wrote treatises on patience. There's not a single treaty from the early church, treatise on mission or evangelism. And the early, we have three on the virtue of patience from the early church. Patience meant trusting God who was inexorably at work. And obeying Jesus who embodied patience. And he called his followers to live in unusual patient ways. Instead of writing about mission or evangelism, the early church fathers wrote the most frequently about patience and prayer. If God was able to grow the church under those circumstances, persecution, disincentives, and harassment through patience and prayer. What's our excuse? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we're sorry for being in such a hurry, thinking that we can get things done in our own strength instead of doing it with you. Lord, we're sorry for making such a mess of things when we do that. Thank you that you're so infinitely patient with us. Thank you that Jesus was the most patient and yet also the most productive person who ever lived. The one who said, I can do nothing on my own. I can only do what I see the Father doing. So please, Lord, come by your Holy Spirit and again reveal to us your immeasurably great power for those who believe. Would you rescue us from overestimating our own wisdom and our own power and our own strength? Would you rescue us from underestimating the power of the evil one, the power of our evil in our own hearts and the power of our culture and our society? And most of all, Lord, would you keep us from underestimating your immeasurably great power for us who believe? Teach us to wait on you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.